0: Good morning, Renewal. Welcome to another weekend of our Stay at Home Sunday Morning Podcast. We've been going through the Book of Judges. Last week, Heath and I looked at our unlikely hero in the judge, Deborah. And as I was just reflecting on the story of Deborah and thinking about that this week, I remember she uh, spoke to Barack when he asked her to go with him to the battle. She said to him, "'Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm coming along. You need to know, though, that God is going to bring victory through a woman.'" and not through you, that God is going to use a woman rather than the military to bring about the deliverance of his people. And I think for a a lot of years, I can admit that I thought in that moment that Deborah was talking about herself as if she's going to get the victory or the glory for the victory instead of Barak. And yet that's not the woman that Deborah is talking about there. She's not talking about God bringing victory through herself. She's talking about another woman today. And so today we're going to be looking at the story of Jael, who is the other woman. We talked last week about how a big point of this story is that God uses whoever He wants in order to accomplish His kingdom purposes, and that truth, I think, has been one of the more problematic truths for God's people to wrestle with, often because they tend to insist, we tend to insist, that God does things our way rather than His way, that God uses our choice in people rather than His own choice, And we tend to think that God would do things or should do things that we think would be good rather than trusting him to do those things that he thinks are good. And I think a lot of times if we look at our struggle in following Jesus, um, (laughs) this is the main struggle. The difference between what we expect him to do, what we think he should do, and what God actually does, and the trouble that we have in trusting him in that and trusting that he, uh, his love, his heart is always for us, and that in his wisdom, he is doing what's best. Anyhow, today we'll be picking up right where we left off last week. Uh, last week, we ended in verse 16 of chapter 4 of the book of Judges. We were reading about the success that God gives to Israel in the battle. Verse 16, we read that Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth, Haigoyim, and all of Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. We closed with those words last week, um, and and I thought I'd repeat them this week, just because I think there's a couple of significant details in the text that just might we might just sort of read over in our modern minds. Uh, one of those things is is the first words are Barak pursued the chariots, and up to this point, as we were reading through the chapter, there's really been quite a quite a lot made about these mighty. Uh, chariots that Sisera has. He's got these 900 chariots. They've all been uh, fashioned with iron. There are these armored chariots that would have represented uh, the pinnacle of military technology of the day. And of course, earlier in the book of Judges, we read that it was because the Canaanites had chariots like this that Israel wasn't able to drive them out. Uh, You show up to battle back in that day, and you maybe got some clubs and maybe a couple of swords and a few wooden spears, and the other team is driving around with chariots. It's a bit like taking a knife to a gunfight. Of course, the story of God's people in the Old Testament is a story of when God is fighting your battles for you, it really doesn't matter how you arm yourself. And so here is the nation of Israel in this story story fighting with inferior weapons, uh, fighting against all odds, uh, with Barak at the head, and yet here is an under-equipped, probably under-chained, possibly undermanned army that is chasing the Canaanite chariots away. I just imagine, you know, soldiers on foot chasing these horses and chariots away. The absurdity of that picture, but that's how things can sometimes look when God is... Uh, is fighting for us. We talked about how God uses this Judge Deborah to accomplish what what God is doing in this story. And in some ways, what God is doing in this story is achieving those things that earlier generations of Israel had failed to even dream possible. And so the earlier nations dwelling there in the Promised Land saw these Canaanites in their iron chariots and said, that's too hard, we'll never be able to drive these people out. And yet God raises up a judge in Deborah who enables this generation to accomplish what the earlier generation could have never even dreamed possible. I was thinking about that fact and, and just even asking myself, what kinds of insurmountable challenges might God's people be able to overcome today? What sorts of problems in our societies or in our faith communities might God lead people to solve that for generations we've looked at them and we've said, there's no good solutions. We can't do it. The challenge is too big. And I think some of the the controversy and even the pain that we've experienced in our society as of late uh, could perhaps be the fact that God is bringing things to the surface because He wants His people to lead the way in finally overcoming them. And so, uh, in the one sense, I, ha- I have hope that God is working through His people and that perhaps He will achieve things today that uh, that for generations, God's people have never seen as possible. Anyhow, we, we read in Israel's, uh, in the account of Israel's victory there at the end of 16 that not a man was left, uh, which is, is, uh, would seem to be a, a complete victory. But one characteristic of ancient warfare is that you haven't really won until you've beaten the leader of the opposing army. And the leader of this opposing army was Sisera. And so, although no one's left at the end of verse 16, as we read on in the account, we're going to read about what happens to Sisera and, and what happens to achieve total victory when the leader of that army is finally struck down. In verse 17, it says, Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot for the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin king of Hazor and the family of Heber the Kenite. Now, if you recall, Sisera was a general fighting for Jabin, king of Hazor, king of uh, Canaan. And, and so there's, a, there's uh, some kind of a treaty between the, this Kenite fellow and uh, between this king. And so uh, Sisera is fleeting to the tents, the dwelling place of, of these Kenites in hopes that he'll find refuge there. So, so who are these people? Who are the Kenites? Now, the Kenites were a nomadic group of people who had originated from the land of Midian, actually related to the Midianites, who, of course, as you all know, are related to the Israelites through the fact that Abraham is also their father. You know, that father Abraham that had many sons, that's not just talking about it in the sense of biblical prophecy fulfillment, but Abraham, after Sarah died, after Uh, Isaac's mother, Sarah, died, and through Isaac came the nation of Israel, Abraham married another woman. At this point, the guy is older than the hills, but this other woman he married gave birth to six sons, and one of those sons was named uh, Midian and became the father of the Midianites. And so, the Midianites, although they're distant cousins, I guess, of, of Israel. They're actually the enemies of Israel throughout much of uh, Exodus and, and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. They are, at times, the villains who are persecuting Israel, who are fighting against them. Um, but some of them, particularly these Kenites, uh, seem to have integrated themselves into the nation of Israel, at least into the land that Israel is possessing. Another connection with the Midianites, uh, beyond them just being oppressors of Israel, is the fact that Moses' first wife was a, a Kenite. And earlier in this chapter, we learn that some of this Jael's family is descended from one of Moses' brother-in-laws. And so uh, so there's this integration of these people who were outside the nation of Israel, but were, were kind of brought in through family relationships and and, and it's, it's often uh, hypothesized by scholars that the Midianites were worshiping uh, a, a very similar God to the God of Israel. Some would argue that it was the same God. Uh, we don't have time to get into all of that. But it, it, at in, in any rate, there is some kind of peace agreement between the nation of Israel and these Canaanites who are dwelling in their land, uh, these nomadic Canaanites who are dwelling in their land, and there's some kind of a peace agreement between these Canaanites and this Canaanite king. So, Sisera goes to find refuge with them. Verse 18 says, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. And so he entered her tent and she covered him with blankets. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. And she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and she covered him up. As we read these last two verses, there's a couple of things going on here. You know, the author of Judges is intentionally turning our expectations upside down. And even some of that comes through in the English. You know, here's this mighty general, uh, a man who has slain, you know, others uh, in droves. And yet in this part of the story, he's suddenly being characterized almost in the role of a child, right? I mean, he comes in the tent and JL say, hey, don't be afraid. And she quiets his fears. And then she tucks him in bed. And then he's saying, I'm thirsty. And she gives him some milk. And I'm thirsty is like the last words any parent wants to hear when they're tucking their child into bed. Um, but anyhow, she, she, so there's, there's a bit of a, uh, a thing happening here in the text that, that is intentional, where there's a role reversal and, and JL is finding herself in the place of, of power over this great general. Of course, when do women typically in society have authority over men, particularly in this day? And that's when the men are children. And, and so the author of Judges is using a literary tool here Uh, to slowly reveal through this story who it is that is really being lifted up by God into a position of power and who it is whose power is being quickly diminished, uh, almost to the point of of a helpless child, right? So, unaware of the fact that his power is gone, Sisera still tries to boss Jael around. And so, in verse 20, he says, "'I want you to stand in the doorway of the tent, and if someone comes by and asks you, "'Is anyone here?' You say, "'No.'" And uh, so Sisera's feeling sleepy after his glass of milk, and he's all tucked in, and he's warm and cozy, and he's like, go stand by the tent, and anyone comes looking for me, say, no, no one's here. And, and, and I'm sure JL's like, yes, yes, okay, my lord, you're, you're safe here, just go to sleep. And so Sisera goes to sleep, thinking that he's totally safe and thinking that he's totally in control. In verse 21, we read, But J.L., Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg, And a hammer, and went quietly to him. And while he laid fast asleep, exhausted, she drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. If that's not gruesome enough for you, the next chapter is this song that's sung by Deborah and Barak about the triumph of Israel with God's help. And in that song, they have this verse that, you know, probably like fourth verse, totally dedicated to uh, recount Jael's deeds. And so in Judges chapter 5, verse 24, we read, Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of all tent-dwelling women. The point that Deborah and Barak are making with this line in the song is that Jael is blessed because God has chosen her to fight in this battle. God has chosen her to be the champion of this battle. He is about to deliver Israel by her hand, by the hand of this lowly tent-dwelling woman. You know, in ancient times, uh, when <laughs> nations would go to war, the last people constricted to fight would be the wives of the nomadic wandering people who dwell in their land, right? These nomads don't quite fit in. Uh, we're not exactly sure who had, they have treaties with and whose side they're really on. Uh, they definitely were seen as less than. I mean, these are the people who can't even muster the social organization or, or the military strength to, like, establish and just settle in a city. Pick a good spot and live there in a city. These are people who wander around like gypsies. Of course, it's also worth pointing out that if Hebrew history were picking their heroes, they probably would have picked good Hebrews for every single hero. And yet here we are, a story you know featured in the Old Testament and and here we are where we don't have a Hebrew woman even as the hero. What we have is this Canaanite-loving Kenite Canaanite woman who is the hero of the story. And this is one of the features of the Old Testament that I think, in particular, lends a lot of credibility to the narrative because uh, so often the scriptures reveal that God chooses heroes according to his wisdom and according to his plan and not according to the, the prepackaged kind of boxes that uh, the typical historical narratives of people will want to put them into where our heroes are our own people. Anyhow, Jael is chosen by God. She's blessed of all women. Of course, that's a reminder to me in the New Testament. It's, it's a similar phrase to what Jesus' mother Mary had a cousin Elizabeth who said these words to her when Elizabeth realized that Mary was carrying within herself the, the Christ child. She said, you are blessed among all women. Uh, and so there's this idea of, of, of a person being blessed when God chooses them for a special purpose. And we see that principle at work here in the story. J.L. accepts God's invitation to join the fight. There's a willingness in her part to do what it is that God's appointed her to do in this time. And in verse 25 uh, of the song, <laughs> it starts to get into the details of, uh, of the story of J.L. killing Sisera. In, in verse 25, they say, he asked for water and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. and And of course, as uh, Sisera is asking for a drink of water and Jael's bringing out the best curdled milk from the house in a bowl that's fit for nobles. We can imagine Sisera's thinking in that moment, oh, this woman is really treating me as I deserve. I am a great man and I deserve great drinks served in great bowls. Uh, and of course, the irony of the story is that he doesn't live long enough to, to find out that he, he indeed is. He's really being treated as he deserves. And God is about to bring the violence of his life back on him while he falls asleep. Anyhow, verse 26, they sing, Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Verse 27, And at her feet he sank, and he fell, and there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell, and where he sank, there he fell, dead. Here, the literary tool being used in the song is, is a repetition and a rephrasing of the story. Uh, one scholar compares this to writing in slow motion, right? How do we slow a scene down and get the audience to really pay attention to, you know, the most exciting part of the movie? And so in verse in verse 26, we have four different verbs being used to describe her action of breaking Sisera's skull with this tent peg. And then in verse uh, the next verse, verse 27, we have three different verbs repeated twice, and then one of them repeated three times to describe his passing away. And it's like this slow motion recording of JL's victory. You know, you, you, don't, you don't always see this in the biblical narrative. You don't see them taking time to slow the frames down and let you see frame by frame what has happened. I mean, when Barak, you know, chased the chariots, he got a simple, he got a simple sentence. But it's like the author is highlighting for us, this is the power of God working through one of his anointed ones, accomplishing unexpected results against all the forces that would oppose God and the people of God in this season. This is what total victory looks like when God empowers his people. In the scene of Jael conquering over Sisera, I'm reminded of Paul's writing to the Corinthian believers that when the Spirit of God is working through His people, God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and He uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose, chooses the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify those things that are, so that no one would boast before Him. God has chosen to use J.L. So that Israel would never make the mistake of thinking that it was their own military might or their great hero, Barak, or even their great hero, Deborah, who led them to victory. But God uses Jael, the lowly tent-dwelling woman, to overcome the mighty General Sisera. And in doing so, she becomes the deliverer of Israel from that present oppression of the Canaanites. Again, it's these deliverers in the story that are meant to point us to Jesus. In, in the same way that God brought the victory in this story by the power of his spirit rather than the strength of a military, we know our deliverer, Jesus Christ, conquered, achieved victory not by leading a Jewish military insurrection against the Romans, and then also not even by summoning the armies of heaven to save him from suffering on the cross, but Jesus achieved victory by submitting himself to death on the cross and by entering the depth of our human fallenness in the power of the Holy Spirit. The mystery of Jesus submitting to death in the power of the Spirit is that in the end, he took sin and death themselves captive, captive themselves as he released humanity from the captivity of sin and death. And just like Sisera thought he was in a place of of control and safety, Satan thought he had won, thought he was in total control when the deliverer suddenly turned the tables and conquered him. We talked about that a couple weeks ago on Easter, but my imagination has just been captivated by this idea that there was maybe just a little bit of trickery involved with the cross. That like Ehud entering the courts of the king with a secret message a couple weeks ago, or like Jael tucking Sisera safely into bed, like those deliverers, our deliverer too, Jesus Christ lured Satan, a being who was hell-bent on stealing humanity away from the eternal life of God. Jesus lured Satan into being this unsuspecting accomplice in his plan for the reconciliation of, of God and all humanity. And I just love that. This is who God is. He's the one who's able to cause all things to work together for good. Even the evil plans of the evil one can become a part of God's plan for good. And I think it's worth remembering today that if God can use evil for good, what can ever stop the advancement of his kingdom? You know, if you will walk with him and walk with him in faith, what circumstances, what trial could you possibly walk through that wouldn't end up resulting in the growth of your faith or the ultimate increase of his presence in your life? Because God can use all things to work together for good. And so today I pray that you would take courage because if you are willing to join the fight on the side of God's kingdom, if you're going to offer yourself as a soldier in the spiritual battle that's being waged for the future of humanity, God's Spirit, I believe, is going to empower you to do what He has called you to do. And so then it doesn't matter if you're a woman facing down the strong man of a society. It doesn't matter if you feel that you're totally outgunned in the fight. God can turn your natural disadvantages into advantages. His strength is perfected in our weakness. And we know that God is determined to shine the light of His goodness and His faithfulness through the lives of His people. So this week... May we be determined to be beacons of his light in the dark world all around us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you that you are are the light of the world, and we thank you that you share your light with us. We thank you that you anointed people in history like Deborah and Brock and JL to be beacons of your light, to accomplish your will, that your Holy Spirit empowered them for the service that you called them to do. And we sit here today reflecting back on those stories and reflecting on our lives. We say, Lord, who are we that you would use us? And yet, Uh, Here you are with us, uh, calling each of us by name, uh, appointing us to your kingdom purposes, and so we ask your Holy Spirit would empower us today, like you did your people in the days of old, and that you would lead us to those things that you're calling us to do, and that you would give our hands victory. In Jesus' name, amen.